It's Sunday, and you tune in to your favorite weekend podcast, but instead of Jeff Kelly's dulcet tones, you hear a couple of interlopers from the history files and Gordon's gun closet. What does it mean? For the answer to this and other questions, stay tuned to episode 158 of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. As Jeff mentioned in the last episode, he and his lovely wife are on a much-needed vacation. We know he needed a break because he left us with the keys to his podcast, which shows a severe lack of judgment apparently due to mental exhaustion. In order to do this episode, Gordon and I hunted around for interesting tales of yesteryear. Not too much of a stretch for us, but we had a hard time settling on something we could devote an entire episode to. For example, we really wanted to talk about one of the more colorful aspects of the 1881 crime wave in Tombstone, Arizona. No, not that incident. We were looking for accounts of the unnerving accordion fiend who repeatedly terrorized the good folks of Tombstone in the dark of night for weeks, apparently. And it turns out to be a literal footnote of history, so we gave up. For now. After a couple of other non-starters and a couple of topics that would actually be kind of great for Jeff, we decided to tap into the rich memory vault of a guy who, like Jeff, loves to regale audiences with tales of yesteryear. We were all young once, just like our source, who at a tender age picked up the nickname Chooch. When Chooch was knee-high to a grasshopper, he started collecting amazing tales from the grown-ups in his life. They were interesting enough to hold the attention of a little guy in short pants, and we hope you'll find these Chooch tales just as fascinating. This podcast is part of the SciCon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash SciCon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. When the Alabama's keel was laid, roll Alabama, roll. It was laid in the yard of Jonathan Laird, oh, roll Alabama, roll. I'm now going to hand the mic over to Gordon, who probably thought he was never going to get a word in edgewise, and I'm going to let him kick things off with a chooch tale about a guy named George. First off, my uh, apologies to Jeff for uh, interloping here uh, on his podcast, but you know, it's about time somebody did, so here we go. And sadly, I'm not going to be able to give you a good Chicago accent. I'll have to use a Western (laughs) one instead. Anyway, little Georgie grew up in Birkenhead, England, uh, right across the Mersey from Liverpool, and a not particularly happy family. Before he was born, his Irish mother worked as a servant for a number of years in a middle-class English household there. As befell any number of young women in domestic service back then, the young master of the house took a shine to her, and by and by she found herself in a family way and out of a job. As luck would have it, she did manage to marry, and though it may not have been the most blissful of unions, her lot (laughs) definitely could have been much worse. 
Thus was born little Georgie. When he was old enough to venture out on his own, he loved to go down to the docks to see what was exciting and new. A terrible war was being waged in a country across the ocean, and since part of that war was being fought at sea, there was a need for fighting ships and fighting men. As luck would have it, one of the ships destined for that faraway conflict was under construction right there in Georgie's very own town. Nobody in that shipbuilding town, especially not Georgie, had any idea of the future outcome of that war or the role this particular ship would play. But Georgie was so enamored of ships that soon he was old enough to heft a duffel bag and he ran away from home and went to sea. He was looking for adventure and by golly he found it as a cabin boy on a whaling ship. Because you see, this is the 19th century. That war raging overseas when Georgie was a lad, it was the American Civil War. The art he poked about in as a boy was owned by Jonathan Laird, and the ship being built there in 1862 was, would go down in history, quite literally, as the subject of story and song, because it was the Confederate Commerce Raider, the CSS Alabama. And this wasn't Georgie's only brush with history. Georgie the cabin boy stayed at sea and worked his way up through the ranks. Eventually, he landed a position with the White Star Lines in New York, and he was actually among those involved in the 1912 rescue operations for White Star's most famous ship, the Titanic. When the Alabama's keel was laid, roll Alabama, roll. It was laid in the yard of Jonathan Laird, oh, roll Alabama, roll. The second story Chutra called was about a, a girl named Mary. She was a more fortunate child than George from Birkenhead. Her father, though an Irish immigrant, was a successful brewer in Mount Savage, Maryland, and they had a nice house and several hands to help with domestic work and work around the brewery. As in the beginning of George's tale, this was the 1860s. War had broken out between the sovereign districts forming the United States of America Slavery was one of the declared causes, and some of Mary's father's domestic helpers were slaves. Although officially a Union state, Maryland had large numbers of slaves within its borders, such as those owned by Mary's father. Union troops stormed through the area, burning down the homes of the local slaveholders on the assumption that they were secessionists. Mary's mother, a quick thinker, knew they were in imminent danger of losing their home and all their worldly possessions. Moving quickly, she ordered the household staff to prepare the, and place every scrap of food in the house on the dining room table. When the Union troops arrived, Mary's mother called out to them, I know you're hungry, boys. Come on in and eat your fill. Although their food supply for the foreseeable future was gone, their house escaped the fiery fate of many of their neighbors and remained standing due to Mary's mother's cleverness. In the latest episode of Moving On, number 297, we reviewed the 1999 film Ride with the Devil, which deals with the turmoil of the American Civil War as it played out in Kansas and Missouri, as opposed to the usual North-South narrative. Chooch remembers a story that could have come right out of that screenplay. Betty's family lived in Missouri during the conflict, and like Mary's family, also owned a few slaves. Missouri, unlike most of the rest of the country, actually was in a true state of civil war. Raiders from both sides of the conflict availed themselves of the chaos to wage war upon their neighbors with fire and sword. 
Some locals took up the cause themselves, but once this was known, it was their families who suffered retribution. Betty was only three when war broke out, but her older brothers were soldiering age and known to ride with Quantrell's raiders, men of southern leanings and few qualms about how to pursue, pursue their quarrel with Unionists. When Betty was five, revenge finally came to her family, and she watched in horror as her 15-year-old brother was murdered in front of her in their front yard. Betty and the rest of her family survived, but their home was wrecked, and shortly thereafter they trekked to California to get as far away as they could from the horror and chaos of war. Chooch's favorite story is probably about John. John was a somewhat small boy for his age, but an excellent horseman. Growing up on the outskirts of St. Joseph, Missouri, he made quite a name for himself as a rider. The story goes that he was such an expert horseman that a girl, in order to gain his favor, came up with the donut so he could skewer it with his finger as he rode by at top speed. Doubtless this is an apocryphal story, but it still gives some idea of how he was regarded locally and certainly regarded in the family. One day, advertisements appeared from the local entrepreneurial firm, Russell Majors and Waddell. They were looking specifically to hire orphans to work on some grand communications operation. John wasn't an orphan, but he signed up right away because the scheme also called for the orphans to be able to ride. When the partners in the firm saw that he was a skilled rider, as he was, they gave him the number one spot in the lineup. The year the advertisements went up was 1859, and the scheme was the Pony Express mail service, starting right there in St. Joseph, Missouri. A special train speeds the mail to St. Joseph. After a brief celebration, the first messenger crosses the Missouri River and rides west. John had the distinction of carrying the first bag of mail and the first leg westward on April 3rd, 1860. And although the Pony Express didn't last much more than a year, it left a legacy of pluckiness that has stayed with us in our national mythology. John is definitely part of that. Some of you have probably guessed John's full name, and maybe even connected more dots to figure out who Chooch is by now. Chooch is me. That handle was one of the nicknames given to me by my dad for reasons beyond my ken, and probably definitely beyond any explanation on this, short of a program. Uh, there's a lot of different stories that exist as to how it came about, but whatever its origin, it definitely stuck. To family and friends, I was Chooch, and George, Mary, Betty, and John are all my distant relatives. Georgie from Birkenhead, who watched the construction of the Alabama, was my maternal great-grandfather, George Black. He moved to Brooklyn, New York, married, and had a family and lived well into his, into his 70s. Mary was Mary McNulty, and she married George Black. They raised my own mother in Brooklyn in the family home, and, and my mom remembered that during the Depression, when men were outside shoveling snow without gloves, her grandmother, Mary, went upstairs and dug into her treasury of saved scraps and sewed up mittens for the men, which my mother, as a girl, then handed out to those men. Her experience of having to get by stuck with her for the rest of her life. Betty was my father's grandmother, and they moved to Northern California to get away from that war. My own grandmother remembered growing up in a household full of stories of the Civil War. 
Oddly enough, even though one of her brothers was shot by Unionists, one of the other older brothers actually served in the Union Army, while yet another served as an artilleryman in the Confederate Army, and they both lived together there in Betty's home. I have some other stories about that stuff, too. But the stories my grandmother told me of her in her childhood, listening to those stories as I was a child, is one of the gifts that I cherish. Of course, John, the horseman from St. Joseph, was Johnny Fry, my paternal grandfather's great uncle. My grandfather's own father was in fact named after him, John Fry. By that time, they'd added an E to the end of the surname, supposedly to distinguish us from horse thieves and cattle rustlers. Maybe it was the other way around. But sadly, the Civil War figures into this tale as well, for poor Johnny was killed during the Civil War right there in Missouri by Southern sympathizers while he was scouting for a Union force. So there's plenty of tragedy to go around on both sides. So there you have it. I do the history files because I'm a history nut. And I'm a history nut because those stories and others that I was told to when I, when I was young filled me with a sense of the immediacy of the past, and even something that happened a hundred years earlier, and this, of course, would have been in the 1960s during the Civil War centennial, was really not all that long ago. I'll doubtless have more such stories to regale you another time. These stories all came out of the 19th century, but I could probably fill another episode with tales from the early 20th. We'll let this be enough for now. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Jeff for giving me, giving me the opportunity to do something different, not just pure formal history. Tune in again in two weeks when Jeff will be back in the podcasting chair with another exciting tale. Remember, without your benevolent support, this and the other shows at the PSYCON Network would not exist. If you're not already a supporter, I encourage you to consider becoming one. Just go to psycon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N dot F-M, and look for the Patreon link at the top of the page. Of course, a sincere thank you to everybody who already supports the network. We're your one-stop shop for a variety of shows, including the weekly Geek Days, hosted by Brecky Thomason, a digest of pop culture, tech, and general nerdiness. If you're so inclined, you can even email Jeff directly with comments and suggestions, or just to say hi at coffeewithjeff, all one word, at gmail.com. If you're on Twitter, follow Jeff there too at at coffeewithjeff. And there's even a Coffee with Jeff page on Facebook. As Jeff reiterates regularly, story ideas are always welcome. If you'd like to support the show but are low on cash, head over to iTunes and leave a review and some stars. This really helps other people find the show. We'd like to thank Jeff for letting us do his podcast this week. Brecky Thomason for having the show on the PsyCon Network, David Metzger for the snazzy Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickert for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme song, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all of you who repost the show across social media. You have a special place in our hearts.
Bad cat. Meow.